Before I take you to our passage in Mark tonight, uh, I wanted to point out something about the the horror genre. This isn't true of all horror, horror films. There's plenty of blood and guts, gore, slasher films and the like, but horror as a genre is really interesting because it's usually, if you pay attention, it's usually about things a lot closer to home than than things out there. It's, it's almost always closer, uh, too close for comfort even when you really look at it. Horror is almost always about things that we're afraid of that we know very personally. Stephen King, you know, the prolific horror writer, he wrote one book that in his own confession scared him in the writing and that was The Shining. And I know many of you have seen the Kubrick film and that couldn't be much more different than the book, so set that aside for a second. Um, but but the reason I think Stephen King says that is because the story is about a man named Jack and his son Danny. And Jack takes a new job. He's a writer, like Stephen King is. And you watch as things turn sideways and suddenly he becomes a terrible and awful threat to his own son. And what's interesting is Danny in the story is about five years old. As I said, the son of an author. And when Stephen was writing the book, he had a son as well who was five years old, by the name of Joe. In fact, Joe is a a famous author now. He goes under the name of Joe Hill. He also writes horror novels. Um, But at the time, Stephen King was dealing tremendously with addiction. He'd kicked a couple of them only to replace them with worse and deeper uh, addictions. And even early on in The Shining, before things get rolling, before it gets supernatural, just in the most natural scene, there's a scene where he comes in on young Danny, who's only two, and finds him scattering the papers of his newest manuscript all over his office, and in seeking to discipline him, his anger goes off the handle, and whipping his boy around to spank him, he breaks his arm. And that's kind of your first introduction to Jack and Danny, but the reality for Stephen King of the story of The Shining was recognizing how much of a threat he was to his own beloved son. And that's, that's what horror, when you look at it, when you look under it, that's what it's really about. And what it allows us to do is it allows us to look at things we normally don't like to think about. Face things that we normally would like to not admit. And actually, this is something that Jesus understood. As we'll see in our passage tonight, Jesus was, uh, he, he didn't shy away from using horrific imagery to make a point. And so with that being said, let's go ahead and turn to our passage. It's in the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. If you have a Bible tonight, Mark chapter 9, if you're in need of a Bible, there should be one stuck in the back of a pew nearby. You're welcome to utilize that. The index will get you to the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. I'd like to just read the passage through, then we'll pray, and we'll take a closer look. Um, We're going to start in verse 43, and read through verse 49. Jesus speaking says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eyes cause you to sin, tear it out. 
It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Let's pray. Father, it's pretty easy to read a text like this and, and recognize that it's supposed to disturb us, maybe even to disturb us out of slumber, to help us to recognize the danger of what we've forgotten is dangerous. So I pray that as we look at this tonight, Lord, we would take any discomfort we have, we would take any gut reaction we have and recognize that that's intentional and we'd allow it to be the pointer to what you're trying to show us tonight. I pray that you'd help us to do that by your spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I actually think it's very helpful when looking at a text like this to have a film like that prior, because especially if you're familiar with Jesus, if you've grown up in the church, if you've ever encountered the sayings we just read before, they kind of lose their impact. Even something that's clearly hyperbole like this becomes commonplace, becomes something you've heard before, um, becomes just a saying, something that Jesus said. But it's hard for us to go back to what it would have been like in Jesus' audience in his day to hear a statement like this. It's hard for us to even go back to the first time we heard it. But what he says here is clearly, and, and I'll add intentionally, intense. I mean, not only does he offer amputation as a better way, but even when he points to the alternative, he very uncomfortably not only speaks of hell, but does it very descriptively saying unquenchable fire where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I mean, if you will, Jesus is, is speaking in a way that makes us uncomfortable. And so clearly we should pay attention and ask ourselves why. And there's two things I want to deal with in this text before we get started. Things that will help us understand but also have a tendency to hinder Understanding. I'll show you what I mean. The first is clearly Jesus is being hyperbolistic here, right? He uses a hyperbole. When he says here to cut off your arm and that it's better to do that than continue in sin, this isn't something that we should embrace or take literally. Clearly. In fact, just as an aside, we'll look at this later, but let's just recognize that your hand doesn't cause you to sin. This isn't the evil dead. Right? That's not part of your reality. You don't struggle with your limbs vying for control. That's not his point. But the problem is we very easily, I think, recognize that. And because of that, we then miss the point of hyperbole. You don't make hyperbole when something is unimportant. right? Unlike our modern use of hyperbole, which is almost always about things that don't necessitate it. Right? And so you, you hear your roommate come in and just go, I have weeks worth of homework, right? And you don't really feel that for, sorry for them. But hyperbole as it's intended is intentionally intense, not, not to make you think that this isn't a big deal, but just the opposite, to show you how big of a deal this is. Jesus is trying to get our attention, and so he puts it in terms that are inherently intense. That's the purpose of hyperbole. That's how it works. And then, of course, when he does speak of hell here, which Jesus does often, as he often does, he resorts to metaphor. Where the worm does not die and the fire does not quench. Now, that can be, can be, I think, just taken as a a literal 
picture of hell, um, it's a challenge to do so for a lot of reasons, but pointing to it and saying it's metaphorical isn't going to explain it away, okay? We have to understand tonight what metaphor is, what metaphor does. If you're sitting and you're watching the same scene with somebody, you don't use metaphor, right? If you say, look at that cloud or, or look at that sunset, you don't resort to metaphor so that they understand because they're experiencing it as well. Now, if you want to write down what you've seen for someone else, then metaphor helps you to paint the picture vividly, right? The other way that we use metaphor is when we're dealing with invisible things, things that can't be seen, right? And so if we're talking about a feeling you have, a romantic feeling, you may resort to metaphor to try and give it a shape because it's an intangible thing, okay? It's an invisible thing. When Jesus talks about hell here, he uses a horrible metaphor because he's speaking of a horrible reality, not a horrible unreality. Whatever these words mean, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, is not going to be less than those things, okay? That's not how metaphor works. He's using metaphor intentionally to make us feel the reality of what is relevantly invisible to us what we've never seen or experienced and can't even comprehend because it's so different than our personal experience. And so recognizing that Jesus uses hyperbole and metaphor tonight is not going to remove this message or this statement entirely and make it easy to digest. It's not going to strip out the kale and make it edible, okay? <laughs> the reality of what we're talking about here is clearly intentional and it's clearly intense. Jesus wants us to get the point tonight that, hey, what I'm talking about is serious. Do I have your intention now? And then let's listen now to what he says. Once again, to read, we'll just look at, he, he says effectively the same thing pointing to three parts of the body, the hand, the eye, and the foot. We're just going to look at one tonight because he's not really trying to make three points. He's just speaking broadly and making the same point. So let's just look at the first one there in verse 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Okay? So he makes this intense statement about amputation and that it's preferred to the alternative because he wants us to recognize clearly the seriousness of sin. Okay? And the reality is, we don't always recognize the seriousness of sin. This is further complicated by the fact that the Bible touches on a lot of issues that in the modern world, we feel like we have a better understanding of. Take addiction, for example. The, the New Testament, over and over again, says things like, don't be a drunk. But now we recognize that addiction has biochemical realities, right? We recognize that there's a physiological addictive nature, that there's all of these complexities to the issues. And so we go, you can't just go to an addict and say, stop being an addict. That's unhelpful. And I would say, actually, that's a true understanding. But you're misunderstanding how the scriptures talk about addiction. In fact, the Bible recognizes that all sin, not just addiction, is addictive. Jesus goes as far to say, if you sin, you are a slave to sin. Okay? The Bible recognizes all sin, not just the ones that we label as addiction, all of them as being inherently inescapable, as being something that at first we choose and then eventually it becomes our master. 
That's just as much true of the proud man or the gossip as it is of the drunkard. I'll give you another way that this plays out. Oftentimes, we look at the way the Bible talks about sin and we categorize places where we agree with the scriptures and other places where we don't, mainly because we say, yeah, but these things are just natural. It's just, it's just a sexual urge. That's a natural part. I'm hungry for a burger. I, I want sex. They're both needs of the body, and I just fulfill them. In fact, sometimes we push it even further, and we say, but this is really an identity issue. If it's just something outside me, that's, that's a behavioral issue, but this is who I am. But the scary thing is the Bible d- doesn't just misunderstand issues of na- nature and identity. It applies that to everything. It says that sin is always an issue of nature and identity. And so Jesus himself looks at Nicodemus and he says, I tell you the truth, you must be born again. Who you are in the first birth is the problem. Paul, later in the book of Ephesians, says, we are all, speaking of all humanity, by nature, children of wrath. He says, our natural selves are corrupt. That's the issue. And so removing what the Bible says about uh, pieces of Sin, because they're natural, is misunderstanding. The Bible doesn't, uh, doesn't think less of those things. It just thinks something much worse. It thinks that all sin is that way. I'll give you one more example. We have a tendency to reduce sin just down to externals. And so we say, look, I, I know I did that, but you don't know my heart. I, I know I, I do these things sometimes, but that doesn't really reflect who I am. I know I said this thing and it was caught on video, but anyone who knows me, that's not representative of who I am, right? <laughs> That is a reality, but the Bible says something much different. It actually says, no, all sin comes from the heart. In fact, it says your heart, the one that we don't know, you don't know it either. Jeremiah puts it this way. He says the heart is deceitful and ultimately wicked. Who can know it? Jesus takes this idea and he says any behavior, any word that comes out of your mouth, any, anything that doesn't even make it to that place, if it exists in your heart, that's the real you. He says, if you hate your brother, whether you've murdered him or not, you've murdered him in your heart, and that is murder. Jesus says it's not just opportunity and physical outcome that is sin, but sin is where it begins. Sin is where it begins in the heart. In fact, clearly when Jesus talks about the eye and the heart or and the, the hand and the foot here, that's not really where the amputation is necessary according to the rest of the Bible. The problem's a heart problem. The problem goes to the very core of your being. Jesus puts it another way. He says, listen, thorn bushes bear thorns because they're thorn bushes. And fruit trees bear fruit because they're fruit trees. And you can pluck the apples off an apple tree all day long and it's not going to change the nature of the tree. The only way to do what needs to be done is you have to uproot the whole tree. You have to have new life. You have to begin again. And as we see across the Bible when it talks about sin, it's not that it doesn't understand the depths of sin, it's that we don't. And that's Jesus' point tonight. He says, you don't think this is as serious as it really is serious. And so he paints a picture for us that's so vivid, it's hard to listen to. Basically what he says is, it's better to be maimed than go to hell. And I just want you to recognize tonight that this is actually something we understand. Like, when it comes down to it, if the choice is amputation or death, we generally choose amputation. 
You remember the James Franco film, 128 Hours? Right? I, I hope I'm not spoiling this for you years late. I'm sure it wasn't that great of a film. Uh, I haven't even seen it, and I still know this point. So here's, here's the gist of the film, okay? He's climbing by himself. He falls. He gets his arm wedged in the crevice between two rocks, and he recognizes he's not getting out. And so he either hangs there till he dies, or he cuts off his own arm and walks away without an arm but still alive, okay? That's something we understand. What's weird about it here is that in this particular category, we just tend to think that sin's not that big of a deal, at least not this sin, at least not our sin, right? There are things that we will make a big deal out of. There are things that we will write blogs about. There are things that we will protest in the streets about. But there are other things, anything that falls under this category of sin that we just go, it's, it's, not, it's not necessary for me to deal with this. I don't have to be so serious. Now, I want to make one form of clarification here. Um, first, I want to press the seriousness of this only in the fact that I think it's easy for you if you're a Christian to read this and go, yeah, but Jesus came and died. Yeah, but forgiveness is available in Jesus. In fact, if you just go to the chapter prior to this and listen to Jesus, he says to his disciples, here's why I've come. I'm headed to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over to the Romans. They're going to be put me to death, and the third day I'm going to rise again. He says, I haven't come to teach. I haven't come to exemplify. I haven't just come to abstractly love. I've come to die. And then a chapter after this, in chapter 10, he picks up the theme again, and he says, For even the Son of Man, speaking of himself, did not come to serve, but to be served, and to give his life a ransom for many. And so, sandwiched around this passage is this emphasis that Jesus' entire intention was to come and to die so that the sin issue would be dealt with, so that forgiveness is available, and yet he still feels the need to speak this way right here. Okay. And this is not just a turn or burn message so that you receive Jesus. Okay. He's speaking here to his disciples and if you continue to read through the New Testament, Paul and Peter and James and the author of Hebrews, they all pick up on this concept and they employ the same metaphor of putting to death your sin before your sin puts you to death. The early church fathers, the Puritans, most of church history has referred to this as the mortification of sin. Okay. It was John Owen who said, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. This reality is something that's not just valuable for those who don't think sin is a big deal, but those who recognize it's such a big deal that Jesus died for it have received that. Okay, but related to that is the clarification I wanted to get to. Jesus is not saying here, as much as it might look like, because this is the only sentence we've read tonight, deal with your sin issue and then you'll make it into heaven. He's not saying it's better to cut this out of your life, to run away from everything, at least then... I'll let you into heaven. That's not really what he's saying here. When you look at the rest of what he's saying, he offers, like I said in his life, a free and full forgiveness of sin. And if anyone gets into heaven, it will not be because of what they've done with their sin, but what Jesus did with it. Okay? The New Testament is consistent on this. However, however, one of the direct consequences of receiving that gift of salvation will be putting your sin to death. 
And so it's just as serious for us because it's so easy for us to go, well, I've received forgiveness. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I prayed at some summer camp when I was a kid and then say, so all of these things don't really matter. My sin's not really a big deal because it's already forgiven. We find ourselves in the, in the phrase of Alexander Pope recognizing that to err is human, but to forgive is divine. And so it's our nature to do bad stuff and it's God's nature to forgive us. So it all balances out in the end. But the New Testament recognizes, in fact, don't even go to the apostles, just look at Jesus. In his own ministry, wasn't he constantly looking at those who saw themselves as A-OK, religiously upright, respected by the community, knowing they were on the road to heaven, if you will, and saying, will you wake up? Do you not see what's really going on? How often did Jesus say to the religious, you look fine on the outside, you're heaven-bound on the outside, but you're hell trapped on the inside over and over again Jesus was warning about the ability we have as human beings to settle for less than salvation and trick ourselves into thinking that we have it and so the way that the uh the church has always talked about these things is that faith alone justifies us Trusting in what Jesus has done brings full justification removes the entirety of consequence of the sin in our lives but it also brings about our sanctification. In other words, Jesus' salvation doesn't just deal with the consequence of our sin, but with the power of our sin in our daily life. And if B is missing, we have reason to question if A is actually there. If the cart isn't following then we have re- or moving, we have reason to question if the horse is at the front of the cart. Okay. In fact, C.S. Lewis, I think, is really helpful. In his preface to The Great Divorce, he takes on this issue directly. Let me read it to you. This is what he says. I'll come back to this quote because it's valuable in the second half too, but for now I'm just going to read you the first half. Talking about repentance, talking about becoming a Christian, talking about salvation, this is what he says. He says, evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unwound bit by bit with backward mutters of dissevering power or else not. It's still either or. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying if Jesus is going to save us, He's going to save us entirely. He's saying if we're going to be a resident of heaven, then hell is not coming with us. And all of the realities of what sin is and does, God is going to continue to purge this from our lives. Now, right up front, let me say that this is a lifelong battle. And I mean this literally. Not like you're not going to achieve it until you're 78 or 79, but I mean until the day you die, the Bible says sin will be a struggle. Paul puts it this way in Philippians. He says, I am assured that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. So let me give you the converse. He will not complete it until the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay? And so the idea here is not that you're no longer going to struggle or that you're going to be perfect, but if the fight isn't there, it may be because you're just a corpse on the battlefield. That's the threat. That's the warning. Okay? And so this is a serious issue for all of us tonight. Now, I want to finish up tonight by just applying this. 
First off, let's just recognize that the seriousness of sin is appropriately rooted in the consequence of eternal judgment. But that's not the only tangible, invisible sin in our life that we still tend to downplay when we're in it. Okay, here's what I mean. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. He says, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption and death. In other words, the choices that you make in your life, small or big, are like seeds you're sowing, and they will grow up, and they will blossom, and they will bear fruit. It brings about consequence. And there's an even scarier truth that's not so much in that image, but true of the way the New Testament talks about these things. Not only do the small choices you make in life actually produce bad things in your life, but also there's a feedback loop in that reality. And so the more seed you sow, the larger the crop and the easier it gets to sow next time. I think we've all observed this. We all start, we can use every category we want, so let me just say bad habits. We all start bad habits by choice, but they're only choices for a while. And then they become habits, and habits aren't easily broken. And the Bible says, like I said, that that's the reality of sin as a whole. And so what I'm saying here is if you choose and make choices today in small issues of sin, they won't be content to stay small. They will grow. There's a quote at the beginning of Kevin's film from The Great Divorce. And what's happening is the lizard recognizes his life is on the line. And so he says, look, I promise to behave. I'll dial it back. I won't, I won't do anything. I'll give you dreams, sure, but they'll be innocent dreams, Right? And so the idea is, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just be controllable. It won't be that big of a deal. That's a lie. Okay? It is the nature of sin to grow. And so if you're sitting here tonight and telling yourself, it's not a big deal right now, just keep feeding it. But there's a second problem. Okay? There's a second issue that we can see that's, that's not just related to the final consequence of hell. It's the fact that sin is deceitful. This is another thing that the Bible says that all sin does. Eventually, as you choose sin, you become blind to that sin. Which is why it's so easy for us to see awful and horrible things and their consequences in other people's lives and so hard for us to see it in our own. And this is a reality of what this does. And so not only with every choice does the choice get easier and you take another step down the line, if you will, but also it becomes less and less of a big deal to you. And it becomes less and less noticeable. And so there's a seriousness in this. And like I said, the reality here, the reality here is bound up in the fact that you really can't pursue heaven and hell at the same time. But you can definitely talk about going to heaven while you're walking to hell. One of C.S. Lewis's greatest influences was a man named George MacDonald. And in his book, Sir Gibby, which is one of my favorites, there's a woman who runs a bar. Now, hold on, because this is going to sound way more 1950s religious than it actually is. So just follow me. She's a woman who owns a bar. She's a Christian. And she justifies the reality of owning the bar with these thinkings. Well, I don't drink personally, 
So, so it's not a problem for me. And they're only going to drink elsewhere. And at least here, I send them home before they're too drunk. I make sure they're safe and get them back to their families and these types of things. Now, that's not where the issue is, okay? What happens is this woman's life takes a turn for the worst. Things get hard. And one night she goes, well, they seem relatively happy. Maybe I should try. And she starts to drink for herself. She continues to self-medicate in this way until it becomes a full-blown addiction. She downward spirals, can barely run the bar herself. And on a night alone at the bottom of her second bottle, she reaches for a third and she hears a voice say loudly, one more drink and you'll be damned. And I'll tell you honestly, the first time I read that, I felt, I felt, I was going to say befouled. I'll use that if you'll allow me. I was just surprised. I was like, not George McDonald. He can't have such a silly religious sentimentality, right? He can't just draw a line in the sand and go, oh, that's it. But I read the book, and I reread it, and the conclusion I came to was there's a recognition there that's more than just, this drink will damn you. It's the recognition that the deeper we get into our sins, the harder it gets to turn around. And to quote the band Cake in their song, Satan is My Motor, They say, I've got brakes, I'm wide awake, I can turn this car around at any time. At the very last second, I can change directions, turn completely around if I feel so inclined. What what George MacDonald is trying to recognize and speak through this character is that's not accurate. And although we as human beings should never draw that line and say, there, they've crossed it, there's no going back. We always need to recognize that Jesus was able to turn to a thief, dying for his crimes next to him and say, surely you will be with me in paradise. We should always recognize that it's not too late for anyone else, but we should be very careful about saying, I still have tomorrow, so this doesn't have to be dealt with today. That's the reality that George MacDonald is trying to get across. Now, How does this impact our lives directly? Jesus isn't talking about amputation. I mean, to be obvious, amputation wouldn't solve the problem. You'd you'd have another hand, another foot, another eye. And it's not where the problem is entirely. I do want you to recognize here, just because it's worth observing, that he doesn't say, if the bar you go to causes you to sin, blow it up. If your kids cause you to lose your anger, you know, knock them out. Right? He puts the problem entirely and completely in you, even though he just does it in the form of the hand, in the eye. You were the problem, and that's where the solution has to take place. But clearly what he's saying here is that we have to be taking drastic measures with sin. Right? Wouldn't we all agree that that's the simple application of what this means? It means sin is so serious that it requires drastic measures. That there's not going to be any sort of armistice, that we shouldn't sit down at the peace table, that there's, there's not any sort of self-control or I'll just keep it back. It's, it's deal with it, uproot it, take it out entirely. Okay? Now, how does this play out in our lives? Four ways that I'd just like to illustrate from. This is not an exhaustive list, but it's enough to get us started. Jesus is saying, if your eye causes you to sin, it's worth spoiling your reputation. You see, this is the way it plays out in our lives. We say, I know this is wrong. I know this is hurting me. But if everybody knew that this was going on, that's too much. And so I'm, I'm just going to deal with it quietly. And I'm going to fight it on my own. And I'm not going to tell anyone about it. 
Or maybe everyone else knows, but we'd still have to own up and identify it and take it as our own and say, yes, this is the type of person I am. And we draw that as a line in the sand. We say, that's a bridge too far. It's not worth it. And Jesus says, oh, yes, it is. Sin is serious. And so don't allow your reputation, don't allow how people to think of you to stand in the way of sin because sin kills and it is set on it. And really, this shouldn't be that surprising. Two reasons. First off, John, the apostle, who's listening to this the first time it's ever spoken, goes on to write in 1 John chapter 1, and he says, if we say we walk in the light with God and continue to practice darkness, we lie. Here's the point. You cannot live a dishonest life with God. And it's not just because you can't hide things from God, although that's built into this premise. Right? It's that reality is who you are and what's going on. And so it has to be brought into the light. The idea there is not God is holy and you are darkness. It's God is truth. And so there's no room for deception. And this impacts our community as well. Because we are the children of light. We're to live honest lives. In fact, you have to recognize that according to the New Testament, you cannot overcome sin on your own. You were never meant to. The Christian life was not meant to be lived alone. It is meant to be lived in community. It's meant uh, over and over again, the one another say that we should rebuke one another in our sin. We should call it to attention because we play too soft with our own sin. That we should pray for one another. That we should confess our sins to one another so that we shall be healed. That's how James puts it. But there's another reason Another reason that gets in the way, another recognition we have to make tonight, and that's that sin is so serious, it's worth costing us convenience. Listen, the Bible doesn't say that this is just something like, oh, I'm going to give it up and walk away, and we choose not to. That's part of it. But it speaks of a battle. It speaks of a struggle. It speaks of difficulty. That is implied, and the reality is... It's going to cost things in your schedule. If that sin issue in your life is too much for you to schedule a meeting, too much for you to, you know, um, uh, well, here, I'll give you one illustration. One of the things the Bible talks about in repentance is repaying the things that you have stolen. So imagine that you've stolen from your employer and you want to come clean. You're going to have to pay that back, and that means working weekends, right? It's inconvenient. You may have to uh, get up earlier in the morning. You may recognize that you are more prone to, uh, prone to worry because you're laying in bed and able to sleep, and the Bible's going to say, fine, get on the floor and pray instead. It's going to be inconvenient. But sin is so serious, the inconvenience is worth it. I think we can see both of these in just the illustration Imagine it really was your hand that caused you to sin and the cost was amputation. Wouldn't everybody see you walking by handless and go, I know what's going on there. I can see what type of person that is. Take the second one, convenience. Is it harder to be a one-handed person? Of course it is. And the reality is fighting sin is inconvenient. It requires manpower. It requires hours. It requires making commitments that would... You know, tangle up your schedule as among other things. It's going to require you to have a really awful conversation with somebody you love. 
And that's going to take time when you'd rather be sleeping. These are real things. And the reason I'm pointing out that they're real things is because they're real things that we use to excuse us dealing with our sin. It's also not going to be comfortable. Remember that Jesus is speaking to an audience here where there is no anesthesiologist, right? The implication here is one of pain, but it's worth it. It's one of surgery, but it's necessary, right? It is so much easier to just give in. It is. Of course it is. The fight is difficult. Constantly having to bring it out into the open again is difficult. And it's painful. And then I'll just give you one more, and this one underlies all the others, and it's also the most important. You want to know the number one way that we oversimplify sin, the number one way where we treat it like less than it is, where we don't remember how serious it is, it's through self-reliance. We think, I can handle this. I can take this. I can lick this. And it plays out in a couple of ways. Sometimes that's why we don't tell other people, because we convince ourselves, I'll clean this up, and then it'll be a past tense testimony, and then I can let everybody know. Or we come to God, and we basically in prayer say, God, I'm, I'm going to get this taken care of. And we give another promise. We give another vow. We say, I'm just going to try harder this time. And if I just read my Bible more, this will be fixed. If I just spend more time in prayer, if I just take on the cow and cut my hair in a tonsil and join a monastery and give my life to starving my body, then everything will be okay. But the problem is, sin is too much for you. That's where we begin That's rule number one of human life. That's why Jesus came to die. In fact, if you're not a Christian tonight, there's a sense where everything I'm saying about fighting sin doesn't apply to you at all because the Bible says you just simply can't do it. That in the full and deep reality of what sin is, like I said, it's a nature problem. And so if all you have to draw on is your own nature, then you are signed up for a failed fight. Repentance is what we're talking about. If you're not a Christian tonight, repentance, in the words of C.S. Lewis, is no fun at all. Okay? But he points this out, and I've always thought it's intriguing. He says, the problem with repentance is just simply this, that it takes a good man to repent, and a good man doesn't need to. That there's something about repentance itself that requires a power that is demonstrated your lack in by needing it. And so the recognition, the base level of the entire fight of sin according to the Bible is completely rooted in the reality of what Jesus has done. Okay, that he came and that he did the heavy lifting and that he died because you could do nothing for your sins so the punishment is coming so Jesus took it. Not only that, but the Bible says that God gave us his own divine nature He gave us a brand new seed to sow. He gave us the Holy Spirit himself so that not only would we live a forgiven life, but a righteous one. And the problem is, even if you're a Christian tonight, we have a tendency to forget this and reduce it back down to my my fight, my struggle. In fact, we forget the whole reality of grace that God says, I will freely forgive you in Jesus Christ. And we go, yeah, he did that once, but now I've got to make myself clean enough for God. I've got to fix this problem before he wants anything to do with me. 
in this conversation that the addict and this angel with a fiery sword have about the lizard, where the angel is constantly going, shall I kill it? And the addict is going, wait, no, can't we just silence it? Or it doesn't seem to be making such a big deal now. He gives all of these excuses when he finally says, yes, you know, damn it all, please kill it. The next thing out of his mouth as he's screaming in the pain of, and suffering of this is, God help me. And that was a true reality for C.S. Lewis, something that he always understood. In fact, this whole story plays out another time in another one of C.S. Lewis, Lewis's work, this time in one of his Chronicles of Narnia series, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. One of the boys in the story is a boy named Eustace, and he is a pain. He's just an awful character. He's whiny and critical, and what happens is he wanders away from the group and finds a pile of treasure in a cave, and he thinks, this is it. This is my life turning around. And so he has enough, t- enough energy to slip a single bangle on his, on his arm. He falls asleep, and he awakes the next night transformed into a dragon. And what happens is he starts to freak out. He realizes that he's got himself into this mess, and he has no way to get out of it. He knows it's related to the bracelet, but the bracelet that fit on the wrist of a man doesn't easily come off the arm of a dragon, right? It's digging in and bleeding as it is. There's, it, this thing is not coming off. And what happens is Aslan, this, this lion character, comes, comes to Eustace and takes him to a pool and he says, look, all will be well if you just get in the pool. So Eustace starts to step towards the pool and the lion steps in front of him and he gets the clear understanding, none of this is verbal, but he starts to realize that he can't go in wearing his scales, that he's got to take it all off. And so he painfully begins to try and scratch and he takes off a few layers and he finds more layers underneath And he realizes that Aslan is there, and Aslan is basically saying, no, it's not going to work that way. You'll never get to the bottom of it. You'll never cut deep enough to deal with the issue. And he says, but these claws, these claws have what's necessary. And he's stuck in the same place, recognizing that he can scratch softly, but that's not what's being offered here. And eventually Eustace chooses to do so and painfully Aslan in a single swoop rips the entire dragon off him and throws him into the water and by the time he hits the water he's just a boy again. That's what it's like. Okay, Let me put it simply for you. When we say as a church that Jesus is our savior we don't just mean the first time or once or when things get really bad. We mean every single day in every single issue along the way. And the reality is, we honestly think we can handle our sin, that we can keep a lid on it, that we can keep it under control, that eventually we'll take care of it, that once we get enough time away from work, once things aren't so stressful, it'll just go away on its own. We think all of these things, but the heart of it, ultimately we think, I can handle this. Sin is so serious that the only way that God could deal with it was to become a man, to live the obedient life you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserve in its place, and that was the only way that sin could be dealt with. But that's only the first half of the story. The reality is, yes, Jesus comes and he dies, but as he told his disciples in Mark chapter 8, and in three days I will rise again, and he raised himself in newness of life, and he offers that new life to us. But he only offers it in himself. This isn't a once and for all deal where you just take it and go and you're always better. 
It's a relationship. He says, to put it in another plant imagery, he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. You bear fruit because you're connected to me. That's the source of life. That's the way it works. And there's one other piece of good news in this. The reality is, yes, we're talking about self-mortification. And if we want to press the image, maybe you could cut off your own hand, but you can't crucify yourself. And that's the image Paul likes to use, right? Eventually, somebody's got to do it for you. But there is good news, okay? The good news is that after death, there is life. And not just in the sense of heaven when you die here on earth, in the sense of the struggle you're having itself. I'm going to read that C.S. Lewis quote again, but I'm going to finish it off. I'm going to move it into the last territory. And this is what he says. Once again, evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. Time does not heal it. The spell must be unwound bit by bit with backward mutters of dissevering power or else not. It is still either or. If we insist on keeping hell or even earth, we shall not see heaven. If we accept heaven, we shall not be able to retain even the smallest and most intimate souvenirs of hell. I believe to be sure that any man who reaches heaven will find that what he abandoned, even in plucking out his right eye, has not been lost. That the kernel of what he was really seeking, even in his most depraved wishes, will be there beyond expectation, waiting for him in the high countries. As Kevin mentioned, the lizard dies and it becomes a horse. And if we just see that as a moment in life, God miraculously heals you, although that does happen for most of us on most issues, that is an oversimplification. But in the final reality of what it will cost you to deal with your sin today versus what you will experience on the other side in heaven is incomparable. And that's Lewis's point that even the things that because the only way you can get them is sinful and so you abstain from them, you go without your entire life, that will be no loss at all because what that thing just points to will be in its fullest and completest reality available to us in heaven. In other words, hell is a tremendously good reason not to play nice with sin. It is. One of the characters in Kevin's film says that all of us want to end up in a better place than where we start in life, and fear gets us up off our ass, and that's true. But the reality of who God is, as demonstrated in Jesus Christ, that this is who we are, and yet still he came, and that he dealt seriously with sin by taking it upon himself and dealing seriously with himself— and that every bent and twisted desire we have as human beings is just that bent and twisted, but still intended and built and designed for good, and that that's what God offers freely for us in Jesus Christ, that is a tremendous reason to deal with sin. Because the reality is, whatever the cost, however much time you pour into it, whatever the inconvenience, whatever it does to your reputation, whatever other people think of you, whatever it does in terms of discomfort, and whatever you lose by not participating in those things, all of it, completely, wholly, and utterly, will be unregretted. Let's pray.
Father, I, I just imagine, because I'm a human being like everyone in this room, that this was an uncomfortable evening. And I know that you said these, thing to dis- these things in this way to disturb the comfortable, to wake us up from slumber, to make us sense again the pain and the danger of reality because we're just too used to it. We're just too exposed to it. We just are too blind to it. But I know that you always and only and solely disturb the comfortable because you desire to comfort the disturbed. You wake us up to how deep the disease goes so that we'll take and avail ourselves to the remedy. And I pray that that would be the case tonight. I pray that we would be committed to, devoted to, the destruction of our sin. That we wouldn't settle for the person we are now, but we would strive, pressing forward, laying aside, as the author of Hebrews says, the sins that so easily ensnare us and running the race with endurance. I pray that we would recognize that you have given us weapons that are not of this world, that are not the weapons of this flesh, that you yourself have promised never to leave us nor forsake us, and the only reason you call us to the shame of bringing our crap out into the light is because you can deal with it. And I pray whatever the cost is tonight, Lord, wherever we're meeting it, meeting this message personally, wherever we feel the finger of God himself laying on an issue and saying, this, this is serious, this is dangerous, This is destructive. I pray that whatever the cost, Lord, we would deal with it. And I pray, Lord, that we would be like Lewis, captivated by the reality and the hope of the fact that this is what you intend. That you are thoroughly and fully uh, committed to our sanctification, to ripping out of us every little sentimental intimate souvenir of hell that even though we hold this fire to our breast and expect not to get burned as it says in Proverbs you are devoted to our good I pray that we would recognize that that we would kneel before that that we would call for drastic surgery knowing that you are the great physician we ask this in your name Amen